Welcome to Ask of Expert, helping business owners, managers, and professionals thrive in the world of modern work. Here's Polly Craig. Well, hello and welcome back. Thank you for joining us. We have an extraordinary episode lined up for you today. What comes to mind when you hear the word startup? Perhaps it's unicorn giants like Airbnb, Netflix, or Uber. But that doesn't mean it's easy to become a household name. Whether it's Silicon Valley or the local food delivery app that you order from, the tech startup landscape continues to advance, empower, and transform every aspect of our lives. So what does this mystical herd have in common? Well, along with a zest for grabbing growth by the horns, they have great professionals, including lawyers, working behind the scenes to advise and protect their business from risk. While entrepreneurs in the land of tech are known for the creative nature and self-starter attitude, there are times to do it yourself and there are times to invest in services, legal being one of them. Though hiring and working with a lawyer may feel daunting, it's a crucial step to take in your business journey. With the right expertise and advice, you can feel confident that your startup is going to be set up for success. Our guest today is a fierce startup champion and is here to shed light on what entrepreneurs need to know from his vast experience in business and technology law. As a partner at Pitblado Law, Adam Hurstein's work focuses on full-spectrum business, startup innovation, information technology, and intellectual property law. Adam has been consistently named to Best Lawyers in Canada and the Canadian Legal Expert Directory for his extensive experience in technology law matters. Today, he brings his expertise and passion to the table to share why, when, and how your startup can gain the most value from legal services. I am so excited about this, Adam. Welcome to the show, and we're happy to have you here. Thanks for having me, Polly. I'm actually pretty excited. So I know that, you know, with our audience being entrepreneurs, business owners, and as well as people working within organizations, let's just start at the very beginning and use the example as we have a great idea, we want to go out and launch a business. We may not have expertise even in the business area, but what are some of the first things that we should be considering when setting up our technology company? I think everything is sort of context specific, right? So it depends on the people involved and what they want to accomplish. And I like to sit down with people before we even do anything and just get a sense of what they're trying to do and where they're at. So some people are literally at an idea stage and they've done nothing other than come up with a really good idea. And they need a lot of advice about structuring their business and everything else. And some people come to us and they've already incorporated or done other things like that and they're a little further ahead. Or maybe they haven't incorporated, but they've developed a product and they actually know from some market research that they've got a captive audience for this, or at least they think they might based on some initial research. So it just depends. So we sit down with people and we talk to them about what they need. And that, like I said, I mean, that could include setting them up in terms of incorporating and working on the relationship amongst the founders in terms of a shareholders agreement, which is an agreement that sets out the relationship amongst the shareholders and how they will interact with each other throughout the life of the company, how the company will be managed. Well, and a shareholders agreement is so important to do up front because Assuming that your technology moves forward and you have to go out and raise funds at some point, 
you have to have that shareholders agreement in place in order to earn the trust of the people that you want to invest in your business. Absolutely. And without even talking about the technical aspects of a shareholders agreement, and it is a technical document if you've ever seen one, and I'm sure you have, Polly. Usually they're long and very boring. And if you have a problem sleeping, you should read them. But the thing that's most important, if you just step back and not think about the technical aspects of the agreement, is what's the relationship amongst the people that are starting the company? What's their expectations of one another? So if you and I are starting a company together and you have you know, marketing experience and I have more sort of admin type experience in running companies, how are we going to divide and conquer in terms of our tasks? But also, how are we going to set that out so that we keep each other honest? And so that if either of us is not doing what we're supposed to be doing, what are the consequences of that? It's an issue that I like to tackle head on now, because what we've often seen in terms of problems is you'll get a bunch of people, they'll get together and they'll set up a company. They will put together a shareholders agreement. It will be a well-drafted shareholders agreement that deals with all the things a shareholder agreement should deal with, you would think. So, you know, it might have people who are listening might have heard of things like shotgun clauses. It might have stuff that deals with what happens if one of us passes away during the course of this in terms of our shares. Do our families get to keep them or do they have to sell them? But, you know, things like that, right? But often what a lot of these agreements overlook is exactly what I was just talking about, which is what's Polly going to do? What's Adam going to do? Like, what are our responsibilities? And what happens if Adam doesn't do what he's supposed to do? What's Polly going to do with him, right? How is she going to deal with that? And so this is a thing that we've run into now where you've got a bunch of people, they start a company and, you know, a couple of them are pulling their weight, so to speak, but some of them are not or one of them is not. And there's no mechanism a lot of the time to deal with this in a shareholders agreement. You have to create that mechanism. You have to create a structure that obligates Polly and Adam to do what they're supposed to be doing, right? And that could come in a variety of forms. It might be in a shareholders agreement, but it could be in an employment agreement or some sort of contractor agreement, but something that deals with this. It's an issue that I've seen. And, you know, if I could indulge you in an anecdote for just one second. We like uh, anecdotes. We have to be careful about names and divulging things like that. So I'm not going to name any names or anything like that. But there's uh, an entrepreneur I've dealt with for a long time. He's a serial entrepreneur. So he's involved in a company a while ago. And there were a bunch of shareholders. And a bunch of them were all doing what they're supposed to be doing. But there was one who wasn't. He was steadfast in refusing to do so. And they didn't have any paper that bound them specifically to doing the things that they all expected of each other. They just did it, right? Because they were the founders, but this one person wasn't. And so after a whole bunch of arm wringing, whatever words you want to use, basically they couldn't come to an agreement and they ended up selling the company, which is upsetting. It was unnecessary. And for me, I always look at stuff like that and then I try to deconstruct it and think about, okay, well, how could we have prevented this? You know, what could we have done? So ever since that particular incident, 
I know with a lot of startups now, we have this very, and sometimes it's a difficult conversation, right? Because I don't think people necessarily think about this, but once you get them going on it, they completely understand it and you tell them a few horror stories and then they really understand it. Yeah, learn from what other people have done. But often we think, you know, especially in a technology business, you're thinking so much about the intellectual property or or the product that you're building and not about putting the right foundation in place up front. And an ounce of prevention goes a long way when you're further down the road. So I think that that's really good advice. So let's get back to the technology in particular. You know, I'm just using it as an example. You've got this idea. Now you've got this structure and you're moving forward. What are sort of the next steps? Because one of the things is you don't even know if this idea is going to take off. So is there sort of, you can go too far and spend too much time on the legal side of things. Like you don't have to do everything up front. So keep it simple. Absolutely. I am a big proponent of keeping things simple, especially for startups. In terms of, okay, so you have an idea, like you were saying, and you know maybe you, you need to put some structure in place, like we talked about. But in terms of the idea and protecting it, I think that's you know something that is worthy of some consideration by startups. And not every idea is protectable, so to speak. I don't know if we want to get into you know various types of intellectual property protection because that gets kind of dicey and detailed. And if people want to know about that, I'm always happy to discuss it with them. Or and there's about a zillion places on the internet that you can go to read about it. But just from a higher level, some things are easily protectable by things like patents, which I'm sure some of your listeners have heard of. But a lot of things are just really ideas at the stage you're talking about, right? And what you're doing a lot of the time is you're sharing your ideas with all sorts of people. So for example, if we want to just take Vexip as an example, right? You've got this technology platform as you're building it out, I'm sure you had to talk to lots of people about what you were building out, whether that be developers of you know websites and apps and things like that, software developers, all sorts of different people, probably marketing and branding people and you know and so on and so on. Plus you're thinking of building out your team and all of that. And as you're doing it, what you might want to do, and which is fairly inexpensive and pretty smart, is develop some sort of a confidentiality agreement or a non-disclosure agreement that you have people sign before you're sharing your, your ideas with them, right? And most people are okay with signing those agreements. Some people don't like signing them. For example, I don't sign a lot of confidentiality agreements. Why? Because as I will say to a prospective client or somebody who asked me to sign one, I'm bound by like a book of rules in terms of things I can and can't do because I'm a lawyer bound by my regulator, Law Society in Manitoba. If I start blabbing about anything, I'm going to be in way bigger trouble than an agreement could ever enforce upon me. Some venture capitalists don't like signing confidentiality agreements simply because they see so many ideas all the time. And Adam could come in with an idea today and Polly could come in with the same idea tomorrow. They don't want to stop themselves off necessarily from certain things. But I find the overwhelming majority of people will sign a confidentiality agreement. They're not difficult agreements. They're usually like three to five kind of pages, something like that. Some can be longer or shorter, but 
those are really important agreements because not only you know they're inexpensive like i said in terms of putting one together and you can usually use the same one again and again for all these people you're talking to right you might have to tweak them a little bit depending on who you're talking to and you might have some concerns about a certain person or a certain relationship you're trying to forge where you need to tweak the agreement a little bit and you might call someone like me for some help with that but i bet you in over 95% of the cases you can use the same agreement for everybody a lot of people approach confidentiality agreements or non-disclosure agreements poly in a simplistic kind of way or in a commoditized kind of way if you and i were to get on google right now and type in confidentiality agreement or non-disclosure agreement precedent or something like that there'd be a zillion things there but i'm weary of people doing things like that because depending on what your idea is we might want to develop a certain type of agreement for you or say certain things in it and a lot of those things online sometimes have americanisms in them uh, in other words they derive from american law so they have certain terms that don't really apply in canada for our canadian listeners so it's an important agreement right because it forms the foundation of whatever relationship you're trying to forge with whomever is going to help you in making this idea happen right and you want to have a whole set of these for all the different people that you talk to so you know you've got that covered off in terms of you feel safe talking to someone for sure and i can only imagine in today's world because you know we all go to google whether it's health issues or other things what are you seeing from is there more of a, a growing do it yourself industry out there and when you go that route, do you find yourself having to unwind certain things? As you say, it might have American-related legal terms that don't cover you off in Canada, or it could just be that it's lacking in the most important areas that are going to provide protection. In the startup world, I think there's an ethos. It's like a do-it-yourself kind of ethos, a bootstrapping, tough sort of ethos right and there's a lot of stuff out there in terms of things that you can read that will say to you you know you can do this yourself you can do that yourself and you can do a lot of things yourself but you wouldn't pull out your own teeth i think you want to seek professional advice whether it's a lawyer or an accountant like whatever you need right you know and that goes with confidentiality agreements or shareholders agreements or incorporating yourself but you know a lot of people do a lot of things themselves. And you know it's funny in preparation for today I was going through some old presentations I've given on startups and stuff like that and there was this one particular slide I sort of fixated on today in preparation which was look if you can't afford a lawyer or at least you think you can't afford a lawyer I think it's better to still document as much as you can with people than to not do so, right? So while I prefer you come to a lawyer and not do everything yourself, I think documenting things is important. Even if it's not great, maybe later we can clean it up if we're helping you. But to have nothing ever in writing can become very difficult and sometimes a problem. Cleaning all this stuff up after poly is always more time consuming and expensive than doing it right the first time. I used to work with this guy. I don't subscribe to this scare the whatever out of somebody. 
he had this thing that he used to say to clients when I was younger. And he used to say like, you know, do it right now, or it's going to cost 10 times as much to fix it, you know, down the road. And that's a, maybe a little bit of an exaggeration. It was his like way of marketing or developing business. But there is something to that in terms of what he was saying, maybe not in terms of the 10 time metric, right? But in terms of it's going to cost you more. It's going to be a pain in the butt. It's way easier on the front end to try to tackle some of this stuff. That being said, you can't anticipate every problem you might encounter down the road, but you can anticipate a lot. And I find most of our clients are pretty bright about knowing their business, knowing the potential risks and obstacles and things like that. And at those points in time, I shut my mouth and listen because it allows me to give better advice, right? You know, back to what you were saying. I think there is a do-it-yourself-y kind of movement out there. And it's just part of the startup world. But that being said, sometimes it's easier to deal with this stuff on the front end. Well, I think what we were going to talk about is that a client that would come with their articles of incorporation, that is very important because that might have your share structure. It should. Uh, It doesn't always, but it should. But if you don't know what your share structure should be and you're using a boilerplate document, you are doing yourself a disservice down the road in having to hire a lawyer to do things over again. We've seen stuff as funny as do-it-yourself incorporation literally written on the bottom of articles of incorporation that were filed with a government entity. So, and to your point, Polly, it's boilerplate share structure that doesn't in any way, shape or form take into account the people who started that company. In that case that I'm talking about, it was okay because it was just one person who owned everything. But imagine if there were a whole bunch of different shareholders and they held different classes of shares and you just assigned a class to whoever based on the boilerplate. That could be disastrous because your boilerplate will say stuff like, you know, these shares are voting and these shares aren't. You might not want some of those characteristics for Adam's shares or Polly's shares or whatever, right? It's fraught with problems, but we see it all the time. I joke around a lot of the time that I'm a lot of people's second lawyer, meaning that some people start out with somebody and they incorporate, but that person they incorporate with might not be or have the same experience as I do in terms of technology companies in particular and setting them up and then seeing them through their growth phases all the way through to exit, right? And so what ends up happening is someone incorporates it and then they hear about us or something like that, end up on our doorstep and all of a sudden we're their second lawyer. So we start looking at stuff and we might clean up their share structure. We might do some transactions to help get them ready for a financing or an exit or whatever, right? So a lot of the time we play cleanup, right? With people's stuff, whether they do it themselves or they did it you know, previously with another lawyer. And by the way, that's not to say the other lawyer did anything wrong. It's just they were dealing with a certain set of facts and circumstances at the time. And those facts and circumstances changed over time, right? Well, and not every business is the same. And as you say, specialization plays a huge role in making sure that our whole purpose for Vexit is to match people with the right professional, depending on the need and the expertise that's required. But just going back to, you know, 
rather than do it yourself, one of the main reasons that people do not engage with the right professional up front is because the costs are unknown. They get nervous because, well, I know that it'll always end up costing more than what they told me it was going to cost. So how do you deal with the issue of budgeting? And especially in a startup business, how do you start that process? And do you have a way that works? And how do you keep your clients with their head above water and not drowning in costs that they're unable to incur? One size does not fit all. So we've been dealing with startups for a long time, probably longer than I care to admit. So over time, we've seen a lot of stuff too. So there's products out there that you can buy online or get from certain law firms that are almost like startup packages. And they'll have all kinds of documents in them that apparently startups need. Now, I say apparently because to your point, everybody needs different things and things are context specific. You know, my line before, one size does not fit all. So over time, we at Blado have developed our own sort of methodology, I guess, for dealing with startups. And so what we do is we'll sit down with the founders and we'll go through sort of where they're at. They may think they have certain needs, so they'll communicate those to us. And those needs may be correct. Like they may be correct in assessing what they need, or they may not be. We also will have an opportunity to ask questions about where they're at. And with our experience, trying to suss out certain information to make an assessment on our end of what we think they might need in addition to what they perceive they need. So after we do that, and that could take, it's iterative. So sometimes it could take a couple of meetings. Usually I do a lot of this stuff on, I guess what you would call spec in terms of, you know, we, we might go for lunch or something like that and just talk about this. I'm not sitting there writing notes or anything like that. I'm just, we're having a conversation, right? I'm trying to get an idea of where you're at. And then- and Adam, so- Adam, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I'm just really interested. Is this something that you invest in upfront or do you charge for that service? It's something we invest in. So where this ends up in terms of a deliverable is- I will send that person a document. This is usually just an email in the form of a table. And I'd say we do this with almost every single startup we deal with now. So it'll be in the form of a table and it'll set out the tasks that we think need to be done. Perhaps we will set them out in an order of priority. We will describe them and why they're important. And If we set a priority to them, we'll explain why we did that probably. And then the other thing that will be associated with each task on this table is a fee estimate. So what's this going to cost you? So you then have an idea as a business person, you know, how to budget for this sort of thing. Are we always accurate with our estimates? A hundred percent of the time? No. Are we accurate most of the time? Yes. And I think it's a good tool for us and for the client in terms of keeping everybody honest and on track in terms of what the tasks are. And then from that, the client says, okay, look, I agree with you or I don't, or I have a budget for this or that. 
So let's do tasks. You know, I've got four tasks here. Let's do the first two now because I have a budget for that. And then let's do those. And six months from now, let's do the other two. It allows for some planning. Well, and it also, I think, you know, that it moves against all the stereotypical lawyers get a bad rap for a lot of things. What this does is create transparency and earns trust over time so that if you are communicating and being open, you don't have to do everything up front. Once you get to this certain stage, and especially for startups, why spend this money, all of it up front, if you don't even know if you're going to get past steps A and B to the next step where you have to have the next legal piece of advice taken? Yeah. You know, back to the whole point about keep it simple. We don't want people spending money they shouldn't spend on us. If things go properly, they'll need us for all sorts of things down the road, right? That are far more intricate, involved, interesting, better for all of us, you know, down the road. So it's a matter of sort of getting, you know, setting off on the right foot. Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Kundal, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network. As you go through, you are have expertise in a specific area. And then when your client hits another milestone and starts to perhaps hire people, you may need somebody that has expertise in a different area that is doing the employment law or something else. Doesn't mean that you will do it. So is there a team environment that you can draw on experts? To use a sports analogy, I often refer to myself as a quarterback and I will distribute the ball as I see fit so that we get lots of points. So we have a team here and we're very cognizant of the fact that most startups are working with a budget. They're very fee conscious. So while, you know, I'm probably the senior member of this team, as sad as it is for me to call myself senior, the other members of the team come in at various levels of expertise in terms of just corporate commercial stuff. But then we also have all sorts of employment lawyers here, you know, securities, tax, anything we kind of need to pull in, we can pull in probably, you know, high 90% of the time. So in terms of the needs of most of our startups, there's very little we can't help them with from a legal perspective. You know, some people get into some pretty intricate stuff, you know, down the road that they might need some very niche expertise that you could only find in certain markets, right? But we can handle most of what a startup would need. So what does your ideal client, and isn't, I'm not saying you personally, but you know, you have individuals, business owners, and you know, we all need professionals. What does the ideal client look like? The ideal client to me has... I was going to say a level of sophistication, but it's not even sophistication. It's just intelligence. So that doesn't mean you have to have a lot of education. Some of my best clients have just high school education. 
but they are very intelligent and can absorb any legal concept you throw at them because they're just bright people. Now, I find that people like that with a reasonable, I'm not saying you have to be brilliant or anything like that. That's not what I'm trying to get across. It's just, you know, a reasonable degree of intelligence and logic so that when you're dealing with people and you're explaining these concepts to them, they can absorb them and you can have a meaningful discussion with them about these concepts. I find sometimes this gets back to, you know, we, we start, you started your introduction today. You're talking about unicorns, you know, all that sort of thing. And I think we do see a little bit of this too. We see people come in and they've got all these like crazy ideas about I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that and I'm going to set up this and that and, and I'm going to creating a billion dollar company and you know all this sort of thing. And they haven't even, they don't even have the kernel of their idea thought out or developed. They might not even know if there's an appetite for this. And they're in love with the romanticism of you know, what they're seeing on TV and, and, you know, in movies and everything else about startups and unicorns and billionaires and the social network and all this sort of stuff. And what I'm trying to say is that's not an ideal client. That's somebody who wants to play a role as opposed to having done their homework. And I'll take the person who's done their homework and is prepared to have a proper discussion about all of the different things you need to talk about with a startup because there's there's a lot to cover. There's a white paper that our listeners are going to be directed to that one of my partners wrote, and it's all about the different areas of law that intersect with startups. And he's got a whole list of them here, and there's there's a whole bunch of them, and there's a lot to consider. And so I find a lot of people are in love with this notion, but the ideal client wants to do the work. And they've already probably done some of it. That's the other thing. They've probably developed their product a bit. They might even come to you with all sorts of thoughts like about the law of this, the legal aspects of what they want to do. They might have specific questions about that. I love clients like that. Those are the people we want to deal with. And quite frankly, Polly, we become a little more selective about whom we're dealing with because we get a lot more out of the relationships like we were just talking about. In today's world, touch on a whole bunch of different things. You, you think about the do-it-yourself world. People think that they can rely on Google. And then you think about every industry now with people working from home, geography has changed. You know, you have an expertise and, you know, this doesn't mean that clients have to be in your own postal code or even province to deal with. Can you touch a little bit on, is that expanding? Do you see more clients and more activity happening across borders? I got clients I've never met. Here we are, you know, recording this. It's a couple of years into COVID, right? I haven't been anywhere in two years. I've Zoomed with people and teams and, you know, everything else. I've been on every platform on earth, I feel like, to talk to different people. And it's just, you know, the way of dealing with them. So to your point, I can deal with somebody no matter where they are now, really. There are some limitations to that because I'm licensed to practice in the province of Manitoba, not all over the place. But that being said, I act for startups and other businesses all across the country. And we make it work. And it's rarely, if ever, an issue in terms of the fact, you know, I'm geographically where I am and somebody else is geographically where they are. It just doesn't seem to be much of an issue anymore. 
Absolutely. More of a technical question. Is there interaction, you know, especially with technology businesses and so much you're relying on the IP and the founders may not have that background necessarily on. And so do your legal partners get involved in interacting with your technology advisors and partners? When you talk about technology advisors and partners, like what do you mean? Well, by if that? you're as an example, if you're say you're developing a widget and you want to patent it or something, but the founders may not be the ones that are technically inclined. They're the the business people that are helping the entrepreneur who may have, you know, they may be an engineer that has an idea. Where is it important? How much do you need to know about the actual technical or product aspects in order to protect it properly? The more I know, the better. So we were getting back before about what's the ideal client. The more I know, the better. The ideal client will not inundate me with information, but will provide me with the right information so I can do my job. And that allows me to provide more value in terms of how I deliver my service. In terms of technical stuff, like you're talking about, I'd like to think that we're in a position to ask the right questions and evaluate the information we're getting so that we can put the founders or the technical person that you're talking about in contact with the right lawyer, or it could also be a professional. So for example, you know, to go back to my quarterback analogy, I might throw the ball within my firm, right? So I might throw that ball to like a labor lawyer, right? Or somebody like that. I might throw it to an IP lawyer in the case of what we're talking about here. As you know, I also practice IP stuff, but there's people that are even more specific who also litigate on it in our office. So they have even deeper insight into some stuff, but there's certain things that we don't do. So for example... I am not, nor is any lawyer in our firm, a patent agent. That's a separate educational type of thing where you, you know, go through courses and exams and everything and become a patent agent. Some lawyers are patent agents, but in Manitoba, there might be one. I can't even remember anymore. In other jurisdictions, you'll find that there's in a bigger place, like let's say a city like Toronto or New York you'll find a lot of people who are both lawyers and patent agents. But my point being that we might say, listen, Polly, the widget you're describing to me, I think might be patentable, but I'm not a patent agent. However, I know some. So I'm going to connect you with patent agents who know about widgets in particular, hopefully, as opposed to just any patent agent, because your widget might be, for example, something to do with like agribusiness. So I'm going to try and hook you up with some patent agent who maybe does a lot of patents around farm equipment and things like that, right? Agricultural equipment, let's say. So I'll distribute the ball outside of the firm to whoever it needs to be based on my discussions with you about the widget and what you've done to protect the widget and all that. You know, we could go in so many directions. One of the things you mentioned is you have a white paper we're going to direct people. We have the show notes where we make sure that people have access to lots of good information. 
But Blado's also created a fabulous resource guide for startups, and we'll include that in our show notes as well. So I just want to make mention. Adam, is there anything that we haven't touched on today that you want to make sure that we cover off? One of them is get advice from the right person. I remember earlier on, I said I'm a lot of person's second lawyer. A lot of people, when they're starting up a company, go, okay, well, I need a lawyer. Sometimes they do it just themselves, but if they need a lawyer and realize they need a lawyer and can afford it, they probably will go to someone they know or are connected to. So for example, most people don't ever deal with lawyers, thank God for them, and only really deal with lawyers during significant life events, like a will, like buying a house or selling a house, stuff like that, right? Like really basic stuff. And so that's your connection with a lawyer. Like I know Adam because he helped me when I bought my house. And so I'm starting this company. I'll call Adam. I think that's a very natural human instinct, right? right? And Adam might be a sole practitioner who just really does house deals and basic incorporations and maybe some wills, like stuff like that. But he's probably never really acted for a tech startup that has all kinds of other legal needs besides incorporating. Adam may do a whiz-bang job at getting them incorporated, but he it just might not be the right person for the long term, right? So to the extent you can find the right person from the get-go, I think it saves you a little bit of time and maybe some headaches down the road. You're preaching to the converted here because that's our whole philosophy with Vexit is matching the right. And it, it also aligns with shared interest more and more. And if you look at the demographics and younger <clears throat> generations, that they want to do business with people that they have shared values. You want to make sure they have the expertise in the right area. But what if they also had somebody that shared same interest? That's of importance now. I think that a lot of people, a lot of startups, you know, most of them need money. In terms of going out and raising it, there's a lot more to raising money than just, you know, Polly, can I have a check for 10 grand, right? Like you can't just do that to like, you can't ask anybody for 10 grand. There's all sorts of rules and there, you know, these are securities laws. And I see you nodding because you probably know about all this, you know, securities laws are designed to protect the public, right? So that I don't go out and start raising money from people and then not fulfill my promises and Polly's out 10 grand, right? And Polly maybe is like, they can't afford you know, to invest $10,000, right? Or maybe Polly's loaded and has, you know, millions of dollars and $10,000 investments, no big deal for her. But there's rules around this, as you know, and there's tests and all that sort of thing. So I just find like a lot of startups, raising money is a pretty common thing that a lot of them want to do. All this to say, get advice, that's all. Because you definitely don't want to start getting in trouble to the point where like you could literally go to jail. Right. So you don't like, you don't want that to happen. And, and do you want to deal with everybody above board, you know, also in terms of. Absolutely. Well, and making sure that you have the right agreements in place so that people understand the risk uh, and that they've signed off on, on everything. So that, and again, on the securities, you know, if it's family and friends, you have to stay within periphery. Any of the, you know, a larger law firm that has a securities lawyer there, which is most law firms now, 
uh, you know, they'll give you this advice. They'll create the types of agreements you just talked about, all that type of stuff. And that's part of what we do, right? Like if, you know, we help people raise money all the time. Like it's a, it's a common thing. When I meet somebody who has some sort of an idea, my brain immediately starts rolling and going, okay, this is Polly. And Polly's got this idea and her idea is this. Who do I know that is like this or has a business similar to this or maybe complementary to this? Or who do I know that has an expertise that might be able to help Polly? Like, I'm trying to think about how to help you, right? But like constantly, that's all I'm thinking about. And I might connect you with whomever if I think it's worthwhile. I'll clear that with you first, of course, right? I'm not just going to all of a sudden start doing all this stuff. I'll say, listen, I know... Joe and Joe does whatever. And I think you and Joe might really hit it off, you know, from a business perspective. Would you like me to make that introduction? Yes. I'd say 99% of the time people do that. I have certain clients, for example, that are serial entrepreneurs. There's one client that I'm thinking of in particular. I've introduced them to, I bet you, probably two dozen people over the last decade, right? where he's just willing to meet with anybody and he knows a lot of things and he's very giving with his time and his knowledge. So, you know, and I'm not saying that's my job because it's not necessarily my job, right? But it's just how I approach everything. And to me, it's about, you know, you're talking about common interests. This is all about building a relationship for me, like a longer term relationship and not a quick like one and you're done you know, I'm trying to get your incorporation or your employment agreement or it's not, it's a longer term thing. Well, that is very refreshing. And I thank you so much, Adam, for sharing your expertise and guidance. And I'll just remind our audience that if you head to the show notes at vexit.com forward slash podcast, you'll be able to download and have links to the great resources that Adam has generously offered to share with you today. So Adam, thank you. I wish you all the best and look forward to our next conversation because I'm sure we're going to have you back on again. I hope so. (laughs) Please note that the conversation in this podcast is for informational and learning purposes and does not constitute legal, financial, or business advice. The Ask of Expert podcast is a production of Exit and distributed globally by the Sound Off Media Company. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many rogues that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey Into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at averyrich.com.